Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a special bonus, dare I say, guerrilla edition of The Rest is History. A couple of weeks ago, Dominic and I did um, an episode on James Bond, uh, timed to coincide with No Time to Die. At the time, of course, we hadn't seen it. Dominic, we now have, both of us, seen it. Independently, I should say. We didn't go together. That would be be too much Rest is History for... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but here we are to um, perhaps just get, pick the, the bones of our viewing experience, um, not because this is turning into a, a cinema podcast, but because you are a top historian of modern Britain. Top possibly, historian. A top historian. Possibly, possibly the <laughs> top historian of modern Britain. That is kind. And, <laughs> and, okay, no, there, Dominic, there are academics was, all over Britain. No, but like, Dominic, pulling what, I hair say, out what, what I will say is that, that uh, no one is better yeah, nobody does you. it better. No one does it better than you. Um, at, at, at taking things that may not kind of seem obvious to hold a mirror up to, uh, to to British society, and you show that it does. So you do it with sport, you do it with music, and you do it with film. That's very um, kind of you, Tom. You know, I'm a massive fan. You're a kind, um, kind person. So imagine that 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 you are writing a history of Britain. In the 2020s, yeah. In the 2050s or 60s. So let's hope you're still going on then. <laughs> yeah. you know, Elon Musk the, has given you a, Elon Musk has given you a kind of life serum, or something, right. To keep you on track. Yeah. Um, what What do you think? What do you think you might? What uses do you think you might put? No time to die. Oh, and actually, before you answer that, yeah, I really need to flag up to anyone listening who's reached this far. <laughs> This is going to be absolutely stuff full with spoilers. And if yeah. you haven't seen the film and you want to see the film and you don't know what wants to ha- what's going to happen, for goodness sake, don't listen to this because this is going to be unapologetically full of spoilers. That's very There's good advice. one massive, yeah. massive spoiler that we will undoubtedly be discussing. So, yes. uh, so don't listen to this. If you want to see the film, you haven't seen it. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, don't... Um... Don't don't keep listening. I mean, that's a very weird thing to say in our own podcast. But um, well, the key thing to do is go to this film. Then, as soon as you've got out of the film, listen to the podcast to find out what you should think of the film, <laughs> or, or rather, what 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 top historian of modern Britain, um, Dominic Sandbrook, thinks of the film. Because Dominic, what would you what would you say uh, it tells us about modern Britain? Does it tell us about anything? Yeah, of course it does. Um, so, in our Bond podcast, we talked about Bond as a symbol of Britishness. We talked about Bond and masculinity, um, and we talked about how that had changed, didn't we, between the books and the films and over the course of the films to so the different kind of incarnations of the character. And it's obviously a film... 
I mean, the, the the portrait of masculinity in Daniel Craig's Bond has always been really interesting. So he's he's never had the insouciance of Roger Moore, has he, or, or of Connery? He's always been tortured and sort of troubled. And um, and obviously in this film, he's in retirement at the beginning, so he's walked away from uh, the Secret Service, um, and he has this sort of slightly. I mean, the film has great fun, doesn't it, with that with Bond as the kind of he's become an outsider so at one point he's working for the cia his number's been reassigned and, and and of course given to a black woman you know the very antithesis of james bond yes okay so so, so on that um he he's living in jamaica yeah he's retired to jamaica ian which fleming's is what ian fleming had done yeah so he has basically become ian fleming <laughs> well who, who, who not, and you said and you said you said that ian fleming you know even by the standards of the 1950s was a massive reactionary Yes, I did. And in moving to Jamaica to basically live this kind of expat colonial lifestyle, he's been replaced by, as 007, by a black woman. Yeah, but moving to Jamaica has different connotations now than it would have done in the 1950s. Yeah, it? but they must be playing with that, don't you? Yeah, they are playing with that. But obviously he's, moving to, he's moved to Jamaica in a very kind of cool way. He's hanging around and fishing and he's... Yeah, but so, did, so, so you could say that Ian Fleming did. I mean, I do think that there is yeah, a kind of that... quite a knowing yeah, okay. tension there between the, I don't the think... kind of the past of Bond and perhaps the future of Bond. I think that's absolutely true. Um, when he first meets his replacement, she pretends to be a local. She's disguised as a local, isn't she? She offers him a yeah. lift on the back of her moped or motorbike or whatever. It Which, is. of course, is also brilliant. You know, um, it, it's not just about race; it's also about gender. Yeah, but it's now absolutely. the man clinging onto the woman as, she, as, as exactly. they ride on the bike. Exactly. And then, obviously, the, that's, I thought that was very well handled, the stuff with him and his replacement. Because, of course, the film is... I mean, in some quarters you've seen people saying, oh, it's double O woke or whatever, which I think is ridiculous. Because, actually, I think the film is having quite a lot of fun with that. The filmmakers are kind of amused with the idea that uh, a black woman is the new 007. And um, they... You know, all those moments when they walk back through MI6 later in the film... And people say, oh, hello, 007, <laughs> the two of them. Yes. I thought that was yes. brilliantly done, actually. I thought that was very yes. funny. And and not they didn't sort of lay it on too thick. Um, but obviously what that's sort of playing with is the idea that the, that the idea that you see in The Guardian every time a Bond film is brought out, that Bond is outdated. So we talked about this in our podcast two weeks ago. And lo and behold, about three days after our podcast went out, The Guardian ran their obligatory 1,200-word why it's now time to retire, James Bond. Did it appear in their excellent Saturday supplement? Uh, it, it might have done. Is that what you've been publicising on this podcast yes, behind my it's back? It's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, not that I don't endorse all your all your own endorsements, obviously, um, but I may raise an eyebrow Roger Moore style at some of them. Um, um, so, uh, so yeah, the film's obviously having some fun with that. Um, Craig's Craig seems old in the film. I mean, he's old, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, he looks old. He plays him as Cause, an old Because after he went to the uh, the premiere and the, he he wore a kind of pink jacket. He did. There were lots of discussions on on fashion. You know, can men over fifty wear pink jackets? Can which they? has a man over fifty? I read with some. Yes, apparently they can. Have you? Do you own a pink jacket? I should be investing one forthwith. Imminently, right? Yeah. Very good. Um, so I think there's that. Um, I think the anxiety Bond films are always quite good on the anxieties good little windows into the anxieties of the day so for example in the 70s about energy the man with the golden gun was all about sort of solar energy and stuff obviously the age of the oil crisis and this is about nanobots that that will kill everybody with a virus now interestingly it's a virus 
you know that will that predates the pandemic yes um, and it's a, it's a virus that gets kind of unleashed from a laboratory yeah and yeah it's a, so it's a lovely, kind of yeah. weird that it got shot before yeah before covid i mean famously it's been notoriously it's been parked for for basically two years but we live in an age when people are obsessed with these kinds of threats aren't they even before the pandemic we we're obsessed with the, the dangers of science the dangers of artificial intelligence of messing with dna which this film is you know that's what the, the, this virus is all about isn't it? it targets your individual dna i think it, i mean it also highlights the way in which um i think our response to the virus as it hit in a sense had already been scripted for us by films like this yeah that the anxieties about um viruses escaping from labs and kind of spreading across the world i mean it's an absolute staple of science fiction of zombie films yes planet of the apes of all that that kind of stuff and i wonder whether uh the reluctance of people um to countenance the theory that um the uh covid might have escaped from a laboratory in wuhan was in a sense precisely because it seemed too much of a staple. I'm sure that's true. Tom. From a thriller, I think that's absolutely true. I think um, some listeners may remember, some of the older listeners may remember a series in the 1970s called Survivors, um, set in a kind of uh, post-apocalyptic Britain. And the title sequence of that always started with a, ch- a Chinese-looking scientist dropping a kind of test tube or something. It's a brilliant title sequence, actually. You see it on YouTube, and it kind of it breaks and shatters and then you see him on various planes crossing the world <laughs> and and i always thought as, as covid started to spread i couldn't help thinking of this title sequence and exactly as you say you sort of think to yourself well because i've seen it in fictional entertainment it therefore can't happen and it will be a ludicrous conspiracy theory if i if i kind of gave into it um but anyway we're getting off topic the bond no the, i don't think the, it is i don't think it is off topic because i thought another kind of very um I mean, in a way, it, it seems prophetic, but I guess it's just kind of working out the, 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 the trends in geopolitics, is that um, it, it ends on an island kind of between Russia and Japan, Japan. Yeah. With, with China lurking in the background. Um, and this is an island of the kind that, that is an absolute staple of Bond films. You know, they, it always ends up on islands that's usually, you know, nuclear missiles and people yeah. running around in tracksuits and all that kind of stuff. Tracksuits. Well, don't, don't they? I mean, I remember in the 70s. They're wearing kind the of Roger Moore suits. ones. Yeah. They're kind of boiler suits. Or, <laughs> yeah. yes, boiler I mean, they're not suits, wearing shell suits. That would be hilarious. <laughs> I was thinking they were wearing kind of, yes, tight-fitting shell suits. Yeah. Um, and, and, and these islands always kind of seem to exist in the middle of nowhere. It's not like they have any kind of geopolitical resonance at all. That's they're right. abstracted from reality. Whereas this one is. and It's, it's Cold War relic, got, isn't it? But, 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 but it's an Indo-Pacific flashpoint. It's, yeah. it's because you've got the you, you've got Russian, Chinese, Japanese forces wondering what the hell the British are doing there. Yeah. And there's a kind of British task force sailing through as it's been doing in past, you know, the past few weeks. And it, it kind of hints at the, you know, the row about the um, the submarine programme. Yes. The, the US, UK, Australian submarine programme. This is where World War Three so, will start in real life. That's what you're yeah, saying. So, so, so in a sense, like, you can imagine the, the, the script writers kind of looking ahead when they start, I don't know, when they started writing in 2015, 2016, yeah. something like that, and saying, well, where might the world be, you know, in, in 2020? That's what James and, Bond films often do, Tom, I think. They absolutely do that. They try to anticipate the, you know, we we had a, we were chuckling in one of our previous podcasts, well, we were chuckling in all of them, but we were chuckling in one of them about the Mujahideen in uh, The Living yes. Daylights, you know, and, and, and that now feels like absolutely of its moment. 
that James Bond would have gone to Afghanistan in the mid-1980s and, and kind of gone involved with the Mujahideen. They're very good, I think, at, at kind of getting what's in the air. Um, and but, but getting a virus and, a, a, you know, yes, Pacific shipping lane tensions. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's pretty good, I thought. Yeah, I thought it was. It is good, but I mean, Bond is also, so the 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 base is is sort of it. The fact that it's a Cold War relic. I mean, Bond himself is a Cold War relic, right? I think it's the se- end of the Second World War. Is it sort of um, bunker and there's pictures of Stalin yeah. and stuff in there? So yeah. it feels kind of that's a kind of a nice little nod back to Fleming and the sort of to original the roots of Bond, exactly. Yeah. So um, right the way through, you have a kind of nods, knowing nods to. Um, yeah, to to its origins with Ian Fleming. Yeah, in absolutely. The 50s. But obviously, and Ian Fleming would have been a, Ian Fleming would have been appalled by this film. Well, okay. Well, let's 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 take a break now because you know this is just a short one. It's, we, we shouldn't go on too long. Um, and, and when we come back, uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what Ian Fleming would have made of it. Okay. Over 25 years ago, on September 29, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this special Bond-themed bonus film-reviewing episode of The Rest is History. Tom, actually, there is a reason why we're doing a film-review episode, isn't there? It's not just because we've already done our James Bond podcast. It's because we want to do some shameless um, promotion for ourselves. We do. Yes, we do. So on the, the 14th of November, Sunday the 14th of November, we are making, I wouldn't quite call it a big screen debut, but there will be a big screen um, so we are performing, bizarrely, at the Odeon Leicester Square as part of something called Podicon. And we will be doing a special Rest is History. Um, you can buy the tickets on Ticketmaster. Uh, I don't have the link, but if you type Ticketmaster, Rest is History. Well, we'll put it on Podicon. Twitter. We'll put it yeah, on Twitter. We'll put it on Twitter. Uh, link, to, link to our advert for and, this, uh, for this and, um, um, show. We will be talking, won't we, about history and films. We so we've, we haven't really settled on our list yet. I think there'll be some dispute about which films we want to do. But I know, I know which films I want to do. I want to do Alexander Nevsky. I want to do Birth of a Nation. I'm sure we'll talk about Gladiator. I know you're a big fan of Braveheart, Tom. <laughs> yeah, well, I, and there's also there's, there's, a, there's a Russian film that, that features um, the worst bottom ever to appear, I think, in any film, certainly, that I've seen. Yeah. Um, Who knew that you were such a connoisseur? Well, it's an absolutely terrifying portrayal of uh, life in medieval Russia, uh, and I suspect that that might feature as well, because we're not doing kind of like the best films, are we, or anything like that. We're going to try and find kind of interesting categories, odd categories, um, a a, a kind of range of familiar films, a range of less familiar films, and hopefully it'll be good. Anyway, it's absolute bargain. What could be more fun on a Sunday afternoon? I think it's about five o'clock, hearing us. Five o'clock Sunday afternoon. I mean, let's face it, you're not going to be doing anything else. So come to this thing, you can see us. And you can laugh at Tom's choice of uh, bottom-related films. Yes. So, James Bond, uh, we're about to talk about what Ian Fleming would have made of it. Well, first of all, Tom, what did you make of it, deep down? Uh, okay, I I thought it was too long. That's a, that's, a, that's madness, by the way. I, I just thought, you know, I, 
kind of drifted off at one point, woke up and they were still shooting each other. Um, and also, okay, so I thought I thought that, that Rami Malek, who's the villain... Yeah. I thought was terrible. Shocking. And the reason for that was that I thought he'd been so brilliant as Freddie Mercury. Right. In the, the biopic about Queen. He's really wonderful about that. Uh, and he's still basically playing Freddie Mercury, it seemed to me. That's all so right. I kept I mean, waiting Fred... for him to start singing <laughs> We Are the Champions or something. <laughs> I thought he was um, good. I thought he was kind of sinister. I thought he was creepy. Okay, but his, so here's, here's the thing. He, he is physically deformed. His, his Lucifer Safin, is it? That's yes. his name, isn't it? It's a very good name. Well, it's classic kind of great, great yeah. Bond name. But he's kind of physically deformed. As yeah. you know, in the in the in the, the uh, episode we did on Bond, we discussed this how um, Ian Fleming always makes his villains physically deformed. Three nipples, very hairy. Three like. nipples, no earlobes, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Now, it, it's a sign of the times that this has provoked quite a lot of controversy. That it's kind of ableist. Oh right! That it that it's casting it's discriminating uh, against ugly. Dis- it's dis- ugly. it's discriminating people who look like sinister Bond villains. <laughs> right. And that this is un, you know, that this is unacceptable. Yeah. And in a sense, it's a kind of classic example of the kind of headwinds that anyone setting out to make a classic Bond film are now facing. You're not allowed to have grotesque villains. Gee, that's yeah. interesting because yes, only yesterday I was writing an article. I wrote a an anniversaries piece for BBC History magazine, which began with the words, "The Emperor Vitellia, Vitellius was a very fat man," and they said, "Could you change that?" And I said, "Very greedy," and I said, "Well, no, I, I think he was very fat." And he um, was fat. and it I'm amuses me. About him now, as it I happens. just wanted to well, start with a bang, and they went, mm-hmm. yeah. and obviously you're not really, you know, that's sort of slightly seen as sort of, you know, middle-aged men punching down by calling Roman emperors fat. Well. I mean, this actually reminds this. It, it reminds me of uh, the discussion we had about three hundred, yeah. Where um, Fbialti's the the traitor is a kind of hideous hunchback, uh, a cripple, yeah. Um, and the format of films now generally is that um, if someone like that appears in a film and he wants to join a band of brothers, then he will be able to do it. And he will probably play some kind of moving, starring role. He will. Which, he'll rescue them. He'd, he'll he'll always rescue be them or something like gold, that. Or he'll, you know. he'll bring a message and die heroically or something like that. The thing that's kind of shocking and, and a little bit, uh, well, actually very, very true to ancient Greece, is that, um, is that he is as, as kind of morally depraved as he is physically re- revolting. Yeah. And that's very true to how the Greeks saw the world. The Greeks absolutely kind of equated physical beauty with moral beauty. Like Ian Fleming. So Ian Fleming seems to have done the same. Yeah. But clearly, this is, this is something that is, is treading on all kinds of, uh, tri- setting off all kinds of moral tripwires. Well, not for the makers of the James Bond films, because Rami Malek's character is hideous, but also bad. So I, but, but I wonder, you know, if they make another one, whether they will take on board those criticisms. Maybe have a very ugly James Bond and a very good looking villain. Possibly. Yeah, yeah. I um, should look forward to that. <laughs> well, actually, to be fair, Daniel Craig is, is, I mean, he's not classically handsome, is he? No, he's not. But James Bond himself isn't really meant to be classically handsome. I mean, I, I remember reading out in the podcast that strange uh, line, those lines in Moonraker, the novel where Fleming says, you know, yes, he, he, looks, did, yeah. he looks not English and he looks something dark and all this, all this sort of stuff. Um, I think, I thought the villain was, he was a kind of traditional Bond villain, wasn't he? He's got a plan... A slightly undefined plan to kind of kill lots of people. He says, 
uh, we both eradicate people. We both clean up the world. I just want to do it in a neater way than you. Um, and uh, they do that thing. They do that thing in the film that now, in the last twenty years, has become very common. Christopher Nolan does it a lot in his Dark Knight films, where the the villain says to Bond. We're not so different, you and I. You know, that okay, kind so, of thing. Okay, so Dominic, yes. Okay, so on that topic, you, you asked me um, what I thought of it. I also thought that it was um, it, it was like a kind of... It, it was to um, Adam West's Batman what the Dark Knight films became. So... Yeah, so it's, it is to Roger Moore as yes, Christopher yeah. Nolan is to Adam West, as it were. Yes. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, and not least because the soundtrack is done by the same person who does the Hans Zimmer who does the soundtrack okay. for all those Christopher Nolan films. So it felt very um, Christopher Nolan-like, I thought. And a sort of a, a sort of gritty, urban kind of feel to it. The sort of the, right. the washed-out so, colours and stuff. And so bearing that in mind, going back to um, uh, the, the figure of Bond as a, an embodiment of masculinity. Yeah. In, in this film... Uh, he has a, a wife. Is he married to? No, he's not married, but she's clearly a girlfriend, which he hasn't. He only had a very fleeting girlfriend in the very first couple of films. She was called Sylvia Trench, I think, and he met her twice, but she wasn't serious. This is the first time he's had a serious, lasting love interest with Madeleine, okay. the Proustian Madeleine Swan. But not only not only does he have a girlfriend. Massive spoiler alert coming up if yeah. you haven't already switched So Harry, our he, producer, has not seen the film and yet no, he's, he's being got, forced, he's got to, edit this. forced to, to listen to this and edit it. And we sort of said to him, stop, you know, try and mute okay. it. And he said, I can't. So. so he also has a daughter. He does have a daughter. Yeah. And so when he's saving the world, he is basically, he's saving his wife, his, his girlfriend. And well, his there's daughter. that scene where he's running through the daughter. base where he's got uh, Doodoo. Uh, yes, the, uh, the abandoned a soft toy. toy kind of stuck in his belt or something or in his pocket. Um so, so, so is that is is that is that basically now? Is that what is that what a, a a kind of classic Bond figure has to do in a film to get away with all his kind of masculine saving the world? A little bit. I mean, does he have to? That. Does he have to kind of child, child stuff toy in the back of his? I think pocket? people have been doing that for about twenty or thirty years. And, and, but have and, they been doing it in Bond films? But not in Bond films. And that's the sort of, and that and that's. But that, that's the, the incongruity of it in a Bond film, because of course part of the point of the Bond character is that he is liberated from all of those. Yeah, he has not. He has. He yeah, has nothing from any domestic ties. He has his parents are dead. He's he floats free of of human associations. So to give him those associations, I mean, I think once you've done that, you can you can't really do it again. I mean, in future Bond films, he can't be, you know, preparing the sandwiches for a children's party or something. I mean, that would obviously be ludicrous. So or going to B and Q to get some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he can't do any of that, so I think that's. But as he'd far get as elite can... service in Binky, wouldn't he? He'd he be would. recognised in Binky. Oh, Mr. Bond, the world. You're, you're... Mr. Bond, your usual plywood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, no, I think I think I mean this is part of the sort of you know all this talk about toxic masculinity and stuff. This is kind of playing with that, isn't it? That Bond is, you know, it, it's the shock when he sees he has a daughter. You know, the ultimate threat to James Bond's mystique. He'll have to, you know, take it to the loo um, when they go to the cinema or, or whatever. I, I think that that's kind of fun, but they can't do it again. I mean, as soon as I saw the daughter, I thought um, he'll have that. You know, this will not end well for Daniel Craig's James Bond because but it's just that, they can't envisage yeah. a future with him with the daughter. Yeah. But I mean, the the, um, the, the 
the the archetype, which is obviously a very very ancient one, of a, a man rescuing a woman. Yeah, which is basically what this this film is about at, at the end of the day. Well, so many Bond films are about, right? I mean, how many of yes. the final kind of climac- the climactic confrontations of Bond films are Bond rescuing the girl from the villain's, you know, revenge or whatever? But again, I mean, is that is is that kind of basic plot something? I mean, clearly, it's again, it's 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 a basic plot that is has to be complicated now in a way that it wasn't say in the 60s it's only marvelous in the 70s though isn't it i mean he res- he goes to the base he's determined to rescue his his girlfriend and his daughter he does rescue them and he does save the world but obviously a tremendous cost to himself i mean that's a as you say it's almost like a mythical story i mean bond and actually i was only thinking about this the other day after we did our bond podcast bond is a mythical character yeah. When future generations, you said, what will future, what will people in 2050 make of this? The sort of more interesting question in a way, in a weird way, is what will people in the 31st century make of it? And they will probably look on Bond much as we look on Heracles or Achilles. They'll say, well, these characters in the sort of, these, these, these punters in the late 20th, early 21st century invested this character with tremendous importance. They bought things that he wore. <laughs> They yeah. modelled themselves on him. They knew he wasn't real, but they kind of wished that he was. You know, well, they made podcasts so you me- about him. You mentioned Heracles. Uh, Heracles uh, ends up um, on a funeral pyre, uh, burning to death. Yes, uh, and there are the the Greeks had two views on what happened next. The first was that um, he he was claimed by a chariot, taken up to Olympus, and basically became immortal. And the second is that he died. Now, massive spoiler klaxon coming up. At the end of this film, James Bond gets hit by a a rain of missiles that descend and destroy this uh, breeding ground for the plague that's going to wipe out the world. So the the world is saved, but Bond isn't saved. He dies. Yeah. So is what what does that mean for, for, for the franchise, do you think? I actually don't think it means as much as people think now previously what happened with the end of each bond was um they were simply replaced and the franchise continued there was the in on her majesty's secret service which we didn't talk about at all last time which is the obvious precursor to this film there are tons and of is, to it. and there's kind of homage in in this one isn't there? in the music the music and it, and on lines we have all the time in the world yeah. is the last line of on her majesty's secret service when bond's wife tracy Dinah rig so is killed Dinah-Rig. So there is a kind of precedent in that they have put in 1969, they pushed the formula. They killed the Bond girl in the final moments of the film. I remember my mum telling me that when she went to see that with my dad, uh, she cried at the end. And lots of people were crying in the cinema when Diana Rigg's character was killed. So unexpected to anyone who hadn't read the book. Um, I think... uh, I mean, normally what happens is they don't mention any kind of transition. Obviously, what they're going to do is reboot it. They'll do what they do with Marvel, with Spider-Man or something. They'll start again with a new M. I mean, that's what I would do. Start again with a new M, a new Q, a new Money Benny, new setup, new Bond. There's no need to even refer to the fact but, okay, that this so, has happened. But do you think, do you think that they might um, kind of make a virtue of the fact that it was originated in the 50s? And go back and start it, set it in the 50s yeah. again? yeah. I have. I did wonder that, and I think no, because Bond is that would then lose the that would make Bond a period piece, 
the lasting appeal of Bond is the modernity, right? Is that he yeah. has the latest technology, the latest look, you know, the the coolest new pop star does the music. You know, they have they have the sort of stars of the day and cameo roles and things. They lose that, don't they, when they go back to the 50s? Suddenly, guess, then you're freezing guess, Bond in time. It, it, but it just felt with this one that they were kind of pushing the the the, um, the potential that exists within the character and, and the narrative setup to, to kind of be squared with the incredibly different mores of, of the 21st century. That yeah. they kind of pushed it almost to a break. I mean, literally to a breaking point. I mean, to the point where they basically had to kill him. I agree, I agree with you to some and extent. And I kind of wonder where... You know, where do you go after that? Well, I think the, there's a, there's a good precedent for that, and we've already mentioned it in this podcast, which is Batman. So, Batman, um, mid twentieth century character. Um, there were various iterations, obviously, and then Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale do the Dark Knight films, which are very dark, very gritty, the most realistic kind of version of Batman there has been. And there have been attempts to do Batman since, and none of them have really, you know, with Ben Affleck and stuff, and none of them have really worked because there was a sense that that iteration of the franchise had pushed the concept as far as you could possibly push it and it'd be interesting to see how they i would have said the only the only way you can do james bond after this is to do it in a very light way to get yeah, and get back, to, back to roger of, moore we'll get back to a kind of sense of fun you know it's not all he's you know there's a sense in this film that james bond's not really enjoying himself um isn't there i mean he's he's never enjoying himself in this but film. the problem with that is that that you've got austin powers and I don't think Kingsman that's a problem. And... I, d- I just don't think that's a problem. I think if you have a very cool star who people want to see, uh, and they know it's a fun iteration, and they and and it's and it's a good, light-hearted kind of two hours of entertainment, I think people will still want to see it. If you make it desirable, I think I, I can't see that there's anything to be gained from pushing this version of the myth, as it were, okay. into darker and darker territory. So just just to return to the question we began with, you're writing. Um... Yeah, the history of the twenty twenties. Yeah, w- w- is this a film that would merit a chapter? A chapter, mm. um, a whole chapter, or um, just a paragraph, or just a sentence? I think maybe a page. All. I think maybe a page. And where I would put it, um, I probably wouldn't put it in a sort of pandemic section. I put it about. I mean, certainly the the thing with Bond and his replacement is really f- a fun way. It would be a fun way of introducing a. Um, a section about uh, the sort of challenge to the kind of white masculinity and stuff, don't you think? Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, yeah. MI6 of the fa- new face of MI6 is a is a black woman. Um, yeah. I think that's very much of the moment. And I thought that I think the sort of you know the sense of we live in an age it's uh, obsessed in many ways with inter- people say interrogating. I don't want to use the jargon with sort of tearing <laughs> down the um, the the sort of the imaginative world that you and I grew up with, which was an imaginative world of forged in the kind of Second World War and the early Cold War, you know, you know, sort of Biggles, comics about the Second World War, the Dambusters on TV about every two weeks, that kind of thing. And you could see this as the kind of culmination of that, that this is really just sort of demolishing all of that. Well, it opens, it opens with kind of Britannia as a great sunken statue. That's right. I mean, yeah. she's been toppled. Britannia yeah. has been toppled into the ocean. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. And it's half sunk beneath sand. Yeah, and I think um, yes, it, it sort of ends. There's that sort of that sort of. I, I thought they they ended it very well actually. So Bond is dead. There's the scene in the pub where M 
Q, Money Penny, Bonds Replacement, Nomi. Um, I think that's probably it. Uh, sitting around having a scotch, and he says a few lines from from Jack London, and then they say right back to work. But then it cuts to Madeline Swan and the daughter driving through you know some classic Bond landscape, and she says, "I'm going to tell you a story about a man called Bond, James Bond." And that kind of, "I'm going to tell you a story." I mean, that felt very kind of mythic, you know. Bond is a yeah. story, um, so maybe that's maybe that's where they go. It, into something that is kind of more overtly mythic. Yeah, I think so. Do you think it's a stretch to call Bond mythic? I mean, you're the you deal in myths no, every day. No, I think I think I think absolutely. Yeah, completely. Right. Um, I think that maybe the best way to end this would be for you to uh, to read out the. <laughs> yeah, it could be t- it could be talking about Tom Holland of the rest is history, but it's actually talking about James Bond, and it was written by uh, Jack London in 1916. The proper function of man is to live not to exist. I shall not waste my days in trying to prolong them. I shall use my time in making history podcasts. And with that, uh, don't forget to get your tickets for the Odeon Leicester Square on Sunday the 14th of November, where you will see Tom and I in person talking about history and films. Very exciting. And uh, we shall see you next time. As they say, the rest is history will return. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it my brain is occupied by the romans it's like gall if you want to hear more of my chat with tom give walking the dog a listen this week and while you're there you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of ricky gervais jack whitehall and jimmy carr what's that raymond yes the rest is history did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history no you weren't in it most spoilt dog in history maybe